businesses are starting to reopen during this nasty pandemic. For Bugra Arkin, owner of Dolan's Uyghur Cuisine, keeping his restaurant open is also about saving his culture from a genocide back home in China. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today is May 4th, 2021. The Environmental Protection Agency plans sharp limits on greenhouse gases. The European Union might allow COVID-vaccinated American tourists by the end of June. And the LA Times announces a new executive editor, Kevin Merida. I hope he likes podcasts. We're in Alhambra, California. It's the gateway to the largest Asian communities in Los Angeles County. At Dolan's, you can find spicy noodles or naan filled with meat, onions, and spices. You can even order a whole lamb kebab. Yes, a whole lamb is on the menu. Their kitchen is busy. So what, what are they gonna fry right now? Uh, so they are making, uh, like I can say fried lagman. The lagman is like most uh, traditional food uh, for vegans, but they are doing the fried version of that. Uh, and what is it? Uh, it's a handful of noodles. Uh, it's fried with the beef and some other uh, veggies. Bugra Arkin is 29, tall, and modest. He may just seem like another business owner trying to survive this pandemic. His restaurant is partially open per California COVID guidelines. In 2020, he got a loan under the federal government's Paycheck Protection Program, what most of us know as PPP. Bugra's workers are constantly sanitizing, and takeout orders haven't stopped. A tour around his restaurant shows what customers are missing when they're not coming to eat here. If I sound muffled, it's because I was wearing a mask. Safety first. Describe to me that mural that we're seeing right now, right, right here in the patio. The picture on the wall, uh, it's like a typical, uh, the musician of the Dolan's people. So the Dolan's means like uh, it's the name of the region in our country, in, in Uyghur. That's why I show our culture as much as possible on the wall. Inside of the restaurant, there's some like carpets, like showing about the Uyghur culture. Yeah, you see men like happy playing instruments, big muscular men too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like cartoon style. Like, looks like Dragon Ball Z. I, I was born in Dolan's area in uh, Uyghur. Uh, homeland. Uh, it's called East Turkestan. Personally, I am really proud of our culture and our food. That's why uh, uh, I come up with the idea to open up the, the Uyghur restaurant in LA. It's very unique food. So we have all influence from like India, Iran, Central Asia, even China. It's like a mixed mixture. Bugra was born in China's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. It's roughly the size of Iran. The famous Silk Road ran through its various Muslim and minority communities. For a long time, the region operated under its own local governments, outside the eyes of the Chinese Communist Party. So, uh, were your childhood memories good memories? It's like a fairy tale. Every Friday we have like event at night. For example, like this week in our house, next week in other houses. It's like party. The party we call Meshra. It was like until uh, home night, like midnight. Yeah, <laughs> didn't end. Parties without end. No end. So sometimes like three days. Things began to change in the Xinjiang region around 2009. Bugra, who is Uyghur and Muslim, remembers the parties ending earlier and earlier. Then people began disappearing. 
He said young Uyghurs were forcibly taken to inland China to work in the factories. The houses and farmlands they left behind were seized by the communist government, who began encouraging the majority Han Chinese to move in. Bugra was 19 and living in the capital city of Urumqi when protests exploded across the city. The tensions between minority Muslim Uyghurs and majority Han Chinese had been simmering, both in Xinjiang and wherever else Uyghurs lived in China. Uyghurs were targeted on account of their faith and ethnicity. They weren't going to take it anymore. So we were protesting because government, they didn't do anything of violent crime. Yeah. So we were peacefully protesting uh, government building, but in the end, after two, three hours, they just sent the military and like, they start like, kicking people, uh, start like sh shooting their, uh, the gun. And at night, they turn off whole light in the city and they start a uh, massacre. The Chinese central government alleged foreign separatists instigated the riot and began a crackdown. It made international news. The government in Urumqi has said that police officers shot two Uyghur men and wounded a third on Monday afternoon. The internet was cut. Mosques were closed. Hundreds of Uyghurs were arrested. People were so terrified. Everywhere is police. Like There's a checkpoint. They're checking their people's ID, their cell phones, everything. It's like another world. What happened in Urumqi changed everything. The state sentenced dozens of Uyghurs to death over the riots. Human Rights Watch said the trials violated due process. The Chinese government has maintained a crackdown on Uyghurs is necessary to combat alleged extremism and violence. This is the context in which the Chinese government began to track Uyghurs throughout the world. Since 2009, activists say at least a million Uyghurs have disappeared, including members of Bugra's family. We'll have more of his story after this break. Bugra's father, Arkin Abraham, owned a publishing company focused on books about Uyghur education. In 2015, Bugra decided to take steps to run the family business in China. Part of that plan was to go to the University of Southern California to study international public policy and management. During his time with USC, he was accepted to a research program located in Beijing. Bugra took that trip back to China as an opportunity to visit his family back in Urumqi, but the Chinese police were keeping tabs on him. In Urumqi, he would find himself in and out of police custody, fearing he would never see his family again. That time, my father, uh, he was driving with me, and he said, like, if you cannot go back, he said, like, don't be sad, because uh, it's not only you, so many people, you will be a hero. There's so many people disappeared, but you're still very lucky. Don't be sad, don't worry about us. Don't lose your hope if you cannot come back. Yeah. It was very touching. Uh, next day, I think in midnight, I was released. And after three days, uh, I went to the police again. But next day in the morning, they released me. And in the airport, uh, there's a tears in my father's eyes. Bugra doesn't know why he was released and allowed to return to the U.S. He thinks maybe it had something to do with him being a student at USC. But what made this moment precious was that it would be the last time he might ever see his dad. 
I have like close personal uh, like relationship with my father. We pretty much we talk every day about businesses, families, like even the world, economy, policy, everything. He was a smart man. Yeah, he's a poet. He's a translator too. Then in 2018, for one month he didn't reply me. It's very rare, like three weeks. And then my my when I video chat with my mother, uh, she start crying and she couldn't say any word. He just disappeared. They just disappeared him. Police said uh, they came to our home and just took him away and searched our home for three days. And my mother was traumatized. Did the Chinese government ever tell your family why your father was detained? In 2019, when I started speaking up in LA Times, it was the first time. Uh, like they told my mother, like they have my father, but they didn't tell her like where is he or what's the crime or. They even didn't show any like warrant or like document. It's just like, let your son shut up, be silent. But Bugra refuses to stop looking for his father. He contacts other activists for leads, but he has heard nothing of his dad's whereabouts, not even a clue. And he says he's being tracked by the Chinese government for speaking out. I guess some weird calls like threatening me, my daughter, even in the United States. And even we have like some police visit from China in our in our restaurant, it's like secret police, asking me some like weird questions. When you talk to your mom, what conversations can you have given that both of you know that the Chinese government is paying so is we watching? Can't, we can't say anything about Chinese government. Every time I ask about my father, she she just like let me don't say any, don't ask anything because the police they install spy app to her phone. So if we have any conversation, like because mostly we have FaceTime, she doesn't speak like more than a minute because next day she has to go to the police station to make a report. Not only did his father disappear, but also his uncles, his friends and neighbors. It was around 2017 when China drastically expanded the size and reach of its quote-unquote re-education camps. The Chinese government insists they're for vocational training, but the Council on Foreign Relations alleged about a million Uyghurs are detained in them. Activists claim detainees are forced to pick cotton and are tortured, and that women suffer forced abortions, sterilizations, and even rapes. Do you ever think you'll ever see your father again? I wish I can see him, but so far I don't know. And they don't, they don't, they don't even like let us to question them, because they threat my mother and sister at home. How's your mother doing through all this? Uh, she's traumatized. I mean, uh, after my dad taken away, like some people also scared to contact with my mom like to be a friend like even our relatives they all everyone is traumatized she always like feeling threat because she always get any calls from the police when like every time i speak up every of my single uh, like tweet even but i already lost everything my mom already lost everything so we have nothing to lose again 
I don't afraid because once I afraid, they will happy. They will threaten more. After this break, how China developed technology to track its Uyghur population. They had features that supposedly were able to detect whether a Uyghur had quote unquote hidden terrorist inclinations. We hear from our reporter, Johanna Buya, about American businesses making deals with these Chinese surveillance companies. And more from Bugra Arkin. Stick around. The world is increasingly decrying China's treatment of its ethnic Uyghur minority. Chinese officials deny any wrongdoing, but the United States and other nations around the globe have declared their actions a genocide. Here's former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. We call on the Chinese government to immediately release all those who are arbitrarily detained and to end its draconian policies that have terrorized its own citizens in Xinjiang. It's not just Muslims that are the largest that are the target of the CCP's hostility. Christians, Tibetans, and other minority groups have also felt the CCP's heavy hand of repression. Pompeo said this just before the Trump administration left Washington. The Biden administration has said it agrees with the designation. The issue has become a flashpoint for U.S. tech companies who do business with China. My colleague Johanna Buya is a business reporter for the LA Times. She reported on a Chinese company accused of using its technology to monitor Uyghurs, it's now winning government and private contracts in the U.S. Hola, Johanna. Welcome to The Times. Thanks for having me. So you did these stories on a Chinese company that sits at this intersection between surveillance technology and the monitoring of Uyghurs. What's this company? How long have they been around and how big are they? So the company is called Dawa Technology and it's based out of China. And it's one of two of the largest manufacturers of security cameras in the world. So they have a huge business inside China, but they also have a pretty big business and presence outside of China, including offices right here in our backyard in Irvine, California. So in your reporting, what did you find out about their surveillance technology? How are they using it? I was able to review documents that showed that um, they were supporting features at one point or another because they dispute that they're continuing to use these features uh, that would not only detect someone who was ethnically Uyghur, but also send alerts to the clients who are using that product that that person was an ethnic Uyghur minority. So it's like facial recognition technology where the camera can ID specific features like nose and eye shapes and the color of your skin, right? Right. The main client for that product is the government and police in China. Uh, we also found that they had features that somehow, and I, and I don't know how this works because I don't know how you detect this, but they had features that supposedly were able to detect whether a Uyghur had quote unquote hidden terrorist inclinations. Um, and then separately, we found that outside of China, there's a consumer platform that had race filters. Um, and we were looking through their open source code and we found that the races that they're able to you know, purportedly detect were black, white, yellow, and Uyghur. Um, and this was a consumer-facing platform that is available, in this case, we found, was in Australia. So it's not just in China. What's the presence of Dahua in the United States? I know you said that they have an office in Irvine, but what either private companies or municipalities are buying their technology? Yeah, so the U.S. has become less of a, a big revenue maker, or at least it's not one of their biggest markets right now. Um, and a lot of that is because the U.S. government has not only put them on this entity list. Yeah, an entity list is like a blacklist kept by the U.S. Department of Commerce. It puts restrictions on foreign companies it finds problematic from trying to do business here. 
This done at the federal level. They also have actually banned the use of federal funds to purchase their equipment. Um, so that, you know, is not great marketing for the company in the uh -huh. U.S. Still, I mean, we we looked at government procurement data just for California alone, and we found 80 public contracts to purchase Dahua equipment. One of those contracts that we dug into was the Modesto School District because it was the biggest contract in the state, and it was for cameras on their school buses. So yeah, Modesto's is a rural city in the Central Valley in California, America's breadbasket. Right, so they were using it to contact trace. Basically, um, if you know someone was found to have had COVID later, they use facial recognition to detect that person and everyone who they interacted with. So the students on that bus are constantly being monitored, but in this case, to see if they were exposed or have exposed others to COVID. Um, we also found out that they actually did use federal funding to purchase those cameras in that contract. The issue here is, you know, we're doing a lot of this reporting. And even though the U.S. put this company on the entity list, people and entities like the Modesto School District are purchasing Dahua equipment from distributors. So they're not purchasing it directly from the company. These cameras are, are pretty prevalent uh, across the U.S. Um, I mean, we found three government offices that have Dahua cameras as well. Oh, boy. And then, of course, it's not just small rural school districts like Modesto. It's also a giant like Amazon who's getting in contracts with Dawa, even though uh, the United States has called them out for their human rights violations. Right. So Dahua, according to Reuters, um, sold 1,500 thermal imaging cameras to Amazon. Um, and that deal amounted to, you know, several million dollars. Um, and like you said, this is in spite of the fact that Dahua is on this entity list, the government was literally was like, you can't use our money to buy this equipment. And Amazon was like, all right, well, we'll use our own money to buy this equipment. So we have a company, Dawa, used by the Chinese government to monitor Uyghurs and now trying to make inroads into the United States and getting contracts with public entities and private companies like Amazon. Did Amazon return your request for comment? No, Amazon has not said anything to me or any of my requests for comment. A few U.S. senators sent a letter to Amazon asking about the deal. And the questions they asked were, you know, a lot of the questions that I had as well, which was, one, did you know that Dahua was on the entity list? Um, was it at all part of your consideration when you were, you know, deciding whether to work with this company? And will you consider human rights violations and ties to human rights violations um, when you're making and when you're getting into contracts with companies in the future. As far as I know, Amazon has not publicly responded to that U.S. Senator letter, and I still have no idea if they responded privately, but it's something that we're going to follow up on. What has Dahua told you about the reporting that you've done? So Dawa hasn't denied anything. Um, what they said was the documents that we found, at least some of the documents that we found, were historical internal design documents. So they're not denying that these features exist. Yeah, like facial recognition technology. Right. And in fact, they're saying, oh yeah, at one point we were either testing it or planning to support these features. What they did say was they were not going to use it moving forward in the markets that we mentioned in our story. And the markets we mentioned in our story um, were the U.S. and Australia. And so while it's reassuring, definitely that, you know, this company, if you're taking what they're saying at face value, is no longer going to use the, these features in the U.S., the real cause for concern is whether they're using this feature in China, and they did not address that once. Yeah, that's what's most disturbing to me from your story. It's like, yeah, we were going to use it maybe in the United States, but now we're not going to do it. And we're not even going to uh, comment about the Uyghurs, even though those features are already there. So make, make what you will with our non-comment comment. I'm just surprised they just didn't outright say that it didn't happen and it didn't exist. I think my expectation was they would say, oh, well, that, that's not actually true. But we had the documents, right? So there, there was not so much that they could say. 
that's sort of the crux of all of this. It's, you know, the United States is calling what's happening to the Uyghurs a genocide. The Chinese companies and Chinese government are obviously using all this technology and promoting all this technology to clamp down on Uyghurs. And yet us as Americans, you know, American businesses, they want to penetrate the Chinese market for all that money. Us as consumers, our iPhones and other things, they're made in China. Do you think any of us, entrepreneurs or shoppers, ever consider the plight of Uyghurs while we're going around and buying or purchasing these Chinese-made products? Uh, Yes and no. I think more and more the public is starting to really come around and realize how bad things are, particularly around Muslim Americans. You know, I've seen a huge effort to try to identify some of the companies that have manufacturing arms in Xinjiang in particular. Um, And there's also, as a result of this public outcry, we've seen um, Congress members try to craft laws that prohibit manufacturing there. And some of the companies that, you know, they say they didn't realize that there were ties to potential forced labor camps in the region. They say that they're on board, but there's limitations to how on board they are. So I think as the public realizes it, it'll put more pressure on these companies. But being a business reporter for my whole career, I do know, and history has shown us, that companies do not respond or aren't going to just proactively pull out of something that is good for their bottom line. Like they have manufacturing arms there because it's cheap. And they're not going to do anything unless regulation forces them to. And they have a lot of like lobbying resources to ensure that that they're not really, you know, going to take such a huge hit from that regulation Um, or if the public responds. And and I'm just starting to really report on surveillance right now. But, you know, the difference between when I report on labor issues in California and Uyghurs in China uh, in terms of the reader response, it has been pretty stark. Um, and so one one struggle I think that we're going to have as, um, you know, Americans, as the public, as, as well as as journalists, is to really somehow get people to care as much about, you know, the plight of this, this ethnic minority as they do about some of the local issues that we really mobilize. Yeah, it happened in the past with apartheid in South Africa, hopefully also happened with the Uyghurs in China. Thank you so much, Johanna. Thank you. After this episode was released Tuesday morning, we learned that Amazon sent a letter in March to U.S. Senators Marco Rubio and Robert Menendez. In it, Amazon said they had not bought cameras from Dawa since mid-2020. It's estimated about 5,000 Uyghurs have moved from China to the U.S. Bugra Arkin's restaurant is a way to keep alive the traditions of a persecuted, often forgotten people. Like we have like three TVs, it's like playing all the time about Uyghur culture, their dance, their like uh, songs, like uh, even some views in our land. But people are asking like, wow, it's like beautiful place and beautiful people. And every time we educate them about the genocide happening in Uyghurs too. This restaurant also playing a really uh, important role in, in our local area to educate people about Uyghurs. In early April, the Australian broadcasting company obtained surveillance records kept by the Shanghai police. The list contained about 10,000 names of Uyghurs inside and outside of China deemed suspected terrorists, including names of children. Bugara tells us that while his name wasn't on the blacklist, he saw three that hit home. Those of his mom, sister, and dad. And that's it for this episode of The Times. 
daily news from the LA Times. Later this week, the Times brings you a story about the slow implosion of the Golden Globes and what this means for the movies you watch. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mario Diaz, and our theme music is by Andrew Eben. Thanks to Jeff Green for giving us permission to play the music you heard in this episode. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>